and welcome to episode 9 of Western Reaches, a Toshi Station podcast. I am one of your hosts, Saf, and with me, as always, is Megan. Hey. And today we have a very special guest. We have Alexander Freed, who is a Star Wars author. He's written for comics and for video games. He's pretty cool. Alexander Freed, hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Yes, it is awesome to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I write things. Um, as, as you said, I've, I've written comics. I write uh, video games most of the time. Uh, I work for Bioware uh, for about six years, and I've uh, been freelance the last couple of years working with all sorts of other companies, uh, Kabam and Obsidian and Warner Brothers Montreal and long, long list of stuff. Um, and my first novel just came out last year, uh, Star Wars Battlefront Twilight Company. It's such a cool list. And we, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, we definitely wanted to have you on because we liked Twilight Company so much and we liked your blog posts about game writing and game development. So thank you so much for uh, joining us. Yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to uh, to get to talk about this stuff and you know get to get to fulfill my my ego by uh, chattering about uh, my own work. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we I mean we sort of met when I interviewed you for Star Wars Insider. So there's a little bit of ego aspect for me too. With like, oh, I I kind of know this person, so <laughs> that's fine. Well, that that was a good interview. I I I remember that one. Yeah. Got some good, got some good material out of that. It was a good book, so <laughs> yeah. It's, well, that's a it's a good book. It's one of my favorite Star Wars books. It's on the top, definitely. <laughs> and <gasps> speaking of books, uh, as always, Megan and I are going to talk a bit about the books we've been reading. Um, I have been reading, or I have read, Halo: Last Light, which is one of the newer Halo novels came out at some point i don't know when but it's written by troy denning and it's about the spartan threes and one member of blue team who is freed and if you don't know halo all that probably means nothing to you whatsoever but they're spartans and it's basically like it's got a lot of awesome female characters which halo manages to do without even really thinking about it a lot of the time i didn't even think about it and then i kind of like got to a point and I was like every single new character being introduced is mostly a lady and I was like that's so cool and it has found family stuff and it's just a fun book and if you like Halo or if you want to get into reading Halo books it's probably a good a good start even it has some stuff that's like weird lore but it's a fun book and it's an easy read and it had so much cute family stuff in it and I'm gonna stop blabbering about Halo because I love it so much Megan what have you been reading? <laughs> uh, well for what it's worth I also really enjoyed Last Light I read it probably well back when it came out um it has great great found family stuff and that's by troy denning who's also worked in the star wars universe oh yeah what did he write in star wars um he wrote a lot of things star by star i think um he did a couple in the later in the later expanded universe books um i think i'm double checking i'm googling here just to make sure that i know what i'm talking about he um Sorry, I, I think he did the uh, the Swarm War stuff, and did he do any of the Legacy of the Force? Uh, he, yeah, he did the the Swarm War stuff in Crucible. That's the one I wanted to I double check. Crucible. He did Crucible, which sort of capped off the EU. 
Huh. One day I'll reach his books in Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, his his he, Halo book was good. Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, he's he's been doing tie-in stuff forever. Um, so I don't I don't remember why I uh, why this came to my attention, but I was looking at his material from late 80s early 90s when he was doing dungeons and dragons novels um and he's he's sort of been leaping from franchise to franchise for almost 30 years now and he must be enjoying it because i don't believe he's done a lot of original work but he's he's clearly uh he's clearly in it for the long haul wow that's impressive doing it for that long yeah, and I guess if you have the, the sort of expertise in that, then that's a good niche for him, it seems like. Yeah, definitely. So, Megan, um, what so, have you been reading? Yeah, so I read Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, and I read it on a plane. I was flying last week. Um, I love to fly. I always watch the landings and the, the takeoff, and this book made me not watch a landing which is astonishing for me (laughs) um it is uh sort of post-apocalyptic it's about a company of shakespeare players in a world post uh, a flu that wiped out 90 percent of humanity and it's super literary really clever i was trying to sort of describe it and i think the thing that I was trying to think about this. It's it's sort of literary. It's sort of it's super clever. Um, it's a little genre aware. There's the sort of villain is this character who calls himself a prophet and sort of runs a town. And as soon as the Shakespeare Company comes into town, they're like, "This guy's calling himself a prophet. The town's real tense. This is a death cult. Obviously, we got to get out." Like they they knew what kind of apocalypse they were living in. And I, I liked that about it a lot. Um, I really highly recommend this one. And it was a national bestseller, so apparently other people highly recommended it too, but I'd not heard of it until recently. Yeah, I haven't heard of it before today, I'm going to be honest. But that sounds really cool. Alex, had you heard of that? I had not heard of it. It it sounds interesting, but no, I'm, I'm not familiar with it at all, so I, I have... I have nothing to contribute. <laughs> no, that's okay. I guess it's somehow a, a hidden national bestseller a little bit. <laughs> um, so what have you been reading? Um, so I, I finished not too long ago. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of post-Tolkien pre-1980s fantasy um, there's a lot of really interesting work that's getting done in that period when fantasy is kind of becoming a genre, but no one's quite sure how to define it. And people haven't sort of settled on, well, Tolkien is the model. Let's just make it all, you know, big, expansive, secondary world epics. Um, and I had never read The Face in the Frost by John Belairs until quite recently, came out in 1969. Belairs went on to write quite a lot of uh, children's books, um, you know, middle grade fiction, all with sort of a a horror bent. Um, And The Face in the Frost is this very odd, short horror fantasy comedy um, about these two sort of elderly wizards with all of these sort of traditional wizard 
accoutrements of, you know, they've got their, their laboratories and their, their giant libraries. And they sort of comedically banter with each other in a sort of car talk esque fashion. And they're just having a, a grand old time with their weird little powers in this sort of anachronistic pseudo fantasy land. And they are pit they they pit themselves against this sort of Lovecraftian horror magic sorcerer, which is a very odd combination. But Belair's makes it work and it's it's utterly delightful and weird. And the plot, you know, occasionally it goes it it winds a little too far from uh, from a central thread now and then, but I absolutely could forgive it for every uh, every detour it made, just because the the prose and the characters and the the feel of it all was was so different and intriguing. I think you just sold it on the strength of car talk wizards. <laughs> <laughs> How does it hold up power wise? Um. Pretty well. I mean, it, it has that sort of Lovecraftian, this stuff is very weird and alien and bigger than me and disturbing for all that without Lovecraft's sort of turgid Baroque prose. Um, it is it is much creepier than it is scary. Um, and it it moves between those comedic moments and the sort of eerie moments very, very cleanly often in the space of just a couple of paragraphs where it's like, okay, we're on the road, we're having a good time. Hey, there's something weird over there. Let's go take a look at it. And then that weird thing just gets weirder and weirder and it just gets genuinely disturbing without ever being graphic, right? Again, it's it's the sort of uh, cosmic, creepy horror rather than, you know, blood and severed limbs. That sounds really that's cool. a hard thing to do tonally, I imagine. So that's that's impressive. It really is. And part of what finally drew me to it um, was I had read some of his children's book books when I was, I must have been eight or nine. I mean, very, very uh, long ago and very young. And I've never reread them since. And I remember almost nothing about actual plots. I just remember being very much creeped out in a in a good way by uh, by those old uh, old middle grade books, and it's like you know what I I should really see what he did with his uh, adult fiction writing, and I'm so glad I did. I feel like creeped out in a good way is is a very good recommendation for something. <laughs> <laughs> they I'm reading one called The Summer Dragon, which is written um, by. Uh, a guy called Todd Lockwood and it came out recently. It came out in 2015, but it's, um, or actually, excuse me, 2016 actually. But I felt like it had that feel of sort of maybe a little more, maybe there's a little more Tolkien reactionism in it. It's more like 1980s fantasy, but it had a really distinct era to it. And I'm not far into it enough to know whether that's a good thing or not, but it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, and you can you can really see the sort of era divisions in in so much fantasy, and that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you know, you you do see people reacting to to trends more so, I think, than in some other. I mean, I guess every genre has its own uh, its own 
you know, all right, this, this is selling, Hey, next wave is going to react to this. But, uh, yeah, I, I have not read the summer dragon. I'm, I'm the summer dragon. That's, that's the title. Yes. 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 Um, I, I haven't read it. I'm vaguely familiar with it. Um, because of Todd Lockwood's background, um, who of course is, uh, primarily an artist. Um, yeah. he's been doing fantasy art for, for so long, do you do you see that in his writing? Um, I want to. I'm going to take your answer, your question, and answer it really literally first, which I apologize <laughs> for. Um, <laughs> you, you you see it in the illustrations. Actually, he has illustrated not every chapter, but many chapters. Um, so it's cool to be able to see. Okay, this is exactly what the author pictured. This isn't an artist working off of a story that they maybe only sort of passingly familiar with this is his picture and it makes me wonder sort of did he come up with the the images first or the or the prose first and i think in this case a lot of it was the images um the the prose itself is i don't know that i can see it really but that might also come from the sort of stylization or the era it's it's colorful without being flowery but it also chooses not to describe certain things in a very, in a way that I think is very typical of sort of that 1980s fantasy. So I have a lot of questions about how things look. On the other hand, I'm not, I'm not complaining about the description. I think the description is very rich also. Does that make sense? Sure. And is, is it intriguing without, uh, without sort of filling in the gaps or does it feel like it's just, well, we're 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 moving past this, and you can you can envision what you like. Is it is do, it teasing at something specific? I guess is what I'm wondering. I think the gaps are very carefully chosen. There's one place in mind. You, I'm I'm about 150 pages into a 400 page book. I might be just speaking too soon, but with the exception of one thing about the dragons themselves. I do feel that all the questions are answered. And I guess maybe that is where I see the sort of artistry of it, where he knows, he knows where to place, where to really uh, slather it with paint and where to just sort of sketch it in. Interesting. I'm really keen to hear more about that. Once you get further for, uh, it's, we'll see. It's, it's dauntingly, it's taking quite a long time right now, but, I'll keep you updated. <laughs> I'm just reading The Martian at the moment because I love the movie. And everyone told me the book was great. And I was on a hold list for like, since the movie came out, I put it on the hold, on hold at the library and I just got it last month. And so I'm slowly <laughs> making my way through it. I think I like the movie more, which is kind of a controversial opinion, but that's just because I have the whole aphantasia thing. So I can't see stuff in my head. So the movie kind of puts it all into pictures, but it captures the voice really well. Um, but if you like the movie, the book's good, though I assume everybody else who likes the movie has already read the book. So moving on to video games, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm sure Megan and I have both been playing a lot of a certain game, or at least some of a certain game, which is Pokemon Go, which came out last week. And I have been playing it perhaps too much, because I haven't been doing as much writing as I should have been. But I have been walking a lot, so I've gotten a lot of exercise, because... Pokemon Go, as you probably already know, is an AR game, alternate reality, I think that's what it stands for, augmented reality, that's it, Um, an AR game, which basically puts Pokemon into the real world, so you can walk around and catch them, and find Pokestops to get potions and Pokeballs, and then go take over gyms, and it's awesome, and there's teams in it, so you can have the whole 
competition thing. You don't have to do that if you don't want to, though. And it basically gets you out of the house and gets you excited about Pokemon all over again. And I love it. Megan, how are you finding it? Um, I'm sort of the opposite in that I don't think I've been playing it enough. I haven't had much time this week but um, beside, and to go anywhere besides my day job or my home. So I haven't had the chance to catch much except for, like, I ran down the block to catch a Weedle recently. Like, so I haven't, I, I've not even gotten any Pokestops. There aren't any in my neighborhood. So I don't, I certainly don't feel like I've explored the totality of it, but it's a lot of fun. It's like, even just hearing the stories coming out of it and sort of, to me, Pokemon Go looks a lot like the inside of my head did when I was a child. Because I feel like as a kid, as speaking of someone who's into Pokemon, I know not everyone was, and I think we are at a good age for it. But, um, I would just picture them around, you know, I was young, I was 10 or something, and imagine you're going off on that journey, and now that we're older, not that we don't have vivid imaginations anymore, I think I think a lot of adults do, but this sort of puts exactly what you were imagining in your world, and that's just, I think that's really key to its success. Yeah. Have you been playing it at all, Alex? I have not. I've I've been seeing the flood of reactions and articles and so on about it. So clearly this is this is something that if I'm going to remain in the game industry for, you know, more than another week or so, I'm going to have to play just <laughs> to to understand this, you know, phenomenon that is clearly um I I, I think it's probably not too early to say this is going to be the the big industry game changer of the year um right like i i don't remember ever seeing a video game get this kind of reaction so fast so i am i'm i have no judgment at this point but i'm very curious to uh, to see it for myself i i did not play pokemon uh as a as a youngster so that uh, that i think put me a, a step behind in in interest and in when i started seeing all the tweets on uh, on my twitter feed talking about you know the new pokemon i just sort of blinked and went what i i guess there's a new pokemon thing oh oh i guess this is big i guess this is real. <laughs> yeah i remember initially i wasn't gonna actually get the game because i knew i had a friend that had the beta for it and so i saw a bit of it ages ago and they've definitely made it a lot better since that was out and because my phone has awful battery, so I was all like, I'm not going to get this game, because it'll suck my battery up, and I probably won't play it, and it's just going to be there on my phone. And then I went to my friend's house for Dungeons & Dragons, and he had it, and on the drive home, he was like, hey, can you just have my phone and like, get Pokestops and catch Pokemon? And I was like, okay. And I started playing, and I was like, oh no, I'm going to I'm gonna get home, and I'm going to download this game, and I'm going to play it, because it is awesome. It's not even... I think the best thing about it is it's accessible, so it's really simple mechanics, and it's just... Even if you don't know Pokemon that well, you can just pick it up and kind of just like walk around and be like, oh, there's a cool looking turtle thing. I'm going to catch that. And then you can name it and everything. And it's, it's really cool. And so, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to ask. Uh, so have either of you found yourselves actually sort of exploring new locations in the real world or interacting with strangers, um, which seems the most sort of interesting from a from a meta aspect stand uh about this 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 craze right is is the idea that yeah this is actually giving people genuine new new experiences not not just game experiences but real world experiences 
Yeah. Um, on last weekend, uh, some friends and I went down to south, mid mid south New Zealand, um, to go see the snow. And on the drive down, we stopped off in Taupo, which is a city around a lake down here. And we decided to go for a bit of a walk to go see if we could find some Pokemon. And we ended up catching like a rare-ish Pokemon down by the lake. And then my friend took over the gym and. We got back to the car, and one of my friends went off to grab a drink at the gas station, and the guy there, like, looked at him and was like, you look like someone that likes Pokemon. On my break, I'm going to go down, I'm going to take over that gym. And, like, it was just a random interaction with a random person just working at the store. <laughs> and then um, the other night, while I was waiting for the kitchen to be cleaned up so I could make some food, I went for a walk down the road, which is, like, five minutes away, because there's a Pokestop not far away from my house. And so I wandered down there, and on the way down... Or on the way back from there, like, a guy drove past and, like, he yelled out the window, Gotta catch them all! And it's it's kind of weird, but it's the first time in my life that, like, anybody's ever yelled, like, a random stranger who was a guy, has ever yelled something nice out of a window of a moving car. And I was so, like, that's so weird that Pokemon has kind of given this strange t- twist on being yelled at out of a car. <laughs> it uh, has, uh, I think. I've uh I've not had any like real world experiences yet and I I want to but like I said I I live in a sort of small neighborhood I go to work I come back and that's about all I've done this week so while I plan to go explore places there are several like revolutionary war sites around here that I want to go see if they have pokey spots at them but I just haven't had time to do that yet so I'm looking with sort of with jealousy at the people that have these wonderful stories of interaction but I don't actually have any myself <laughs> yeah I went for a walk with a friend yesterday as well like a three hour walk because she was like do you want to go catch some Pokemon and it's a friend like she's a pretty good friend but we never actually hang out one on one it's only in group situations and so it was actually a chance for both of us to you know go for a walk explore our neighborhood and actually hang out as friends for like the first time in ages and it was really cool as well getting that opportunity so this game has definitely it may disappear in like a week i don't know it could it could be like mitomo and just disappear straight away or it could stick around for a little while but either way it's nice seeing what it's doing at the moment i think one of the extraordinary things about it is that it's free it it anyone who wants to can play it, and there are in-game purchases but i think part of the reason that it has um gotten such a wide wide acceptance is because it's relatively easy to get you need to have the right kind of phone but you don't it, it's free yeah and even then the microtransactions inside of the game aren't hugely necessary they're not forced upon you like some games do where you can't continue playing unless you know you buy more energy or something which is a very fair marketing way marketing strategy for games but i think yeah that's partly why pokemon go has worked so well for a lot of people is that it's easy to play without spending a whole lot of money and speaking of Pokemon, there have been some more Sun and Moon things. I think a couple more Pokemon were leaked yesterday. Um, there was like the weird... I don't remember what it's called. It's like Mimic Mimikyu or something like that is its Japanese name. <laughs> and it's like a ghost oh, Pokemon yeah. that's basically a bootleg Pikachu and I love it. I think it was Mike on Twitter that joked that it was called Peekaboo and that's just what its name is going to be to me now. Yeah, I had a friend who said she was going to name it that. Um, I don't know if there's much other Sun and Moon news. Do you know, Megan? I don't believe so. I think only the leaked ones, and that one was the highest profile. It was, I liked it. It was a little cute, a little creepy, and I, that was a perfect combination, I think. Yeah, it's it's a good Pokemon. I'm really excited about this new generation of Pokemon. They look really cool. (laughs) Um, Good Pokemon. Very good. Have you been playing anything else apart from Pokemon, Megan? So, 
um, two weeks ago, I was playing Lego The Force Awakens to review, which was a lot of fun because I was, um, you know, I was planning on getting it anyway, so I was enjoying the Lego games. And I've not, again, um, I've gone through the main story. I've not had a lot of time to really dig into the the side stories yet because I was away. But it was a lot of fun. Um, nothing really extraordinary. If you want a Lego game, it's a good Lego game. They added a sort of first-person shooter mechanic, which I do not think works well. It You have to, like, you hide behind a barrier. Like, Shepard can hide behind a barrier in Mass Effect 3, but instead of popping out very easily and using the trigger, you have your controller is, or your uh, directions are attached to the target reticle, not to your actual, like, the barrel of the gun. So as someone who plays a lot of shooters, it was very odd to get used to this sort of floaty target thing, and maybe maybe it would be easier for, for kids or something, but it was a very strange mechanic. <laughs> and that was the only thing I didn't like about it. The missions were fun. It was really cute. There's a lot to do. I can tell that I'm not gonna, you know, finish it for ages. So definitely recommended some weird shooter mechanics. Interesting. I <laughs> I know that you're not into Lego games, right, Sap? Yeah, so. I'm not a huge Lego person. What about you, Alex? Oh no, I'm I have very limited experience with the Lego games. Uh, more more watching in delight than actually playing. <laughs> That's very. It fair. it was delightful. It was. Yeah, I actually, the game I have played, because I've only really, I swear I've played like a million games over the last couple of weeks, and I can't remember any of them, except for one called Endless Express, and I've talked about um, Leave Oma before on here, and it's one of the people who, well, the person who worked on Leave Oma, Florian Feltman, um, is one of the people who worked on Endless Express, which was initially a game jam game, and then the group who made it decided to expand it into an actual commercial game. And then to realize that they didn't have the right skills or time to actually make that game. So they released a work in progress, um, which is about, I think, all they're actually going to do on it. I don't think they're going to finish the game. But they released a work in progress on this game. And so it's not a finished game. It's a rough It's a rough game. It's not perfect, but it's kind of like a weird little gem of an experience. It's only about 20 minutes or half an hour long, depending on how much you wander around, how long it takes you to figure out um, the mechanics of the trains because it took me a little while to figure out the timetables, because I am not the brightest person sometimes. And, yeah, like I said, it's only about 20 minutes long, and you basically catch trains to these little patches of worlds and wander around and talk to people there, and you can help some of them with certain tasks. And it kind of becomes this weird little adventure that may or may not be a metaphor for death. I'm not sure. And it's really strange and really eclectic, and I thought I wouldn't like it because... The art is kind of like, some of the art isn't really my jam, but I really enjoyed it. It kind of gave me this bright little feeling of warmth after playing it. And, like, it, you can get it for free, but if you do play it, I'd recommend paying a dollar or two because, like, it's less than a coffee and you get, like, a cool little 20-minute experience and support some devs. And, yeah, thought I'd give that. That sounds delightful. It is delightful. And there's, like, little frog people and weird, weird people who are in boats like a lighthouse it's really cool there's also a blimp at some point it was just it was so bizarre i didn't understand what was happening but i loved the entire thing what is the mechanic like are you managing these trains or is it mostly that you're talking to people it's it's kind of an explorer so yeah you're talking to people and wandering around because you basically 
got on a train and fell asleep and you wake up and you're at the end of the line and this someone tells you that if you want to get home you have to cross the river and catch one of those trains and basically there's trains traveling in different directions and there's like a timetable that tells you which trains are arriving when and which little patches they go to like which areas they go to and so you can you've got to basically catch the idea i think is to catch all the trains visit all the areas and then there's like a little off area place in one of the worlds we can kind of go off of the map and then end up somewhere else and you basically follow it gets a bit more linear there and you kind of follow a direct story kind of um there's not much of a story but you kind of follow something along until you get to the end and then it's like thank you for playing kind of thing and it's really cool yeah cool Uh, alex have you been playing anything recently yeah, uh, so most recently I ran through, I've been playing a lot of indie games recently as well, um, and I played through Wadget Eye Games' uh, Blackwell series. Um, they are point-and-click adventure games um, released between, oh, 2008 and 2015, thereabouts. Um, so they are, they are recently made but very much a tribute to the uh point and click adventure games of the late 80s and early 90s the sort of stuff that sierra and lucas arts would uh would do at the time um and they sort of chronicle an ongoing story of uh a sort of urban fantasy uh supernatural detectives type uh type storyline you are uh, you're playing a medium and you are going around laying ghosts and uh, sort of other strange creatures to rest with the help of your own personal uh, ghost sidekick. Um, and they're one. I, they're they're just they're a lot of fun if you like that kind of point and click adventure game. Um, so just on on that level, I would certainly recommend them. Um, but playing them all together was a particularly interesting experience because you can see um the the change in both designer and artist experience but also resources as they go on so even though they're all built off really relatively simple tech right they it's traditional point and click adventure game technology which is pretty much the same as it was back in the early 90s um you know with with tweaks here and there uh, but the first games still end up looking like games from the 1980s with, you know, relatively, uh, relatively limited palettes um, and relatively simple art. And they never get, you know, high resolution or 3D, but they do become increasingly elaborate and increasingly beautiful as everyone involved clearly just gets more and more comfortable with the tools um, and on on that kind of meta level, I, I find it really interesting as a as a study in look. There's technology is not always the the gateway for you know fantastic imagery or or gameplay. A lot of the time, it's really just working with the same tools over and over and learning what they're good at. Yeah, definitely, and that's an interesting thing to you know watch over a series of games i think i've actually been recommended those games because the name is really familiar and i have a friend that really likes those things that would have recommended that to me um so i've been thinking about picking those up i think i'm pretty sure it's on my list of games to play (laughs) it it is worth your time and they are they're very reasonably priced um you know they're they're little 
they're little indie adventure games. These are not, you know, $60, uh, 40 hour, uh, behemoths. So it's, it's a small investment in both, uh, time and money. So if it, if it falls into the, uh, if, if you like point and click adventure games, great. If you don't, you know, if you don't like, uh, looking for the, the object that you're going to need to solve the puzzle, if you're, if that sort of thing just doesn't appeal, then it's probably not going to win you over. But as someone who was raised on that sort of thing, like I, I, I love a good adventure game. Yeah. I grew up playing like Monkey Island and stuff. So that stuff appeals to me definitely. Um, Speaking of indie games, however, I want to do a quick shout-out because one of my friends released a demo for her visual novel um, called Inverness Nights, which I have not played much of, but the art is gorgeous, and she's been working on it for, like, two years, and the story sounds amazing. I know all the spoilers because she's been telling me everything, and the story is really cool. <laughs> and you can go pick up the demo, which is, like, 20 minutes to play through. I'm not... I think it's 20, to, 20 minutes to half an hour to play through. And you can go pick it up on kitsubasa.edge.io or you can just google Inverness Nights and it's got like it's got good representation sexuality wise um, it's got ghosts and people with weird powers though I'm not sure how much of that turns up in the demo but it looks really awesome and if you like visual novels or reading cool stuff that is historical fiction it's probably a good bet so go check that out and then we'll move away from games because we have Alexander Freed here and our, so our main topic is going to involve franchise writing and game narrative, because that's what he does. So yeah, we were wondering, actually, Megan, do you want to take this? Because you're good at questions. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so one of the, I just wanted to start at the beginning. Um, we're, we were aware that you would work for Bioware for quite some time, but as, especially as people who are sort of starting out might be interested in this um how did you get to bioware how did you first sort of get your foot in the door in the games writing industry sure so i i got into games through uh pen and paper game design um this was this was long ago and far away um but you know i wrote uh for uh role-playing games in the sort of dungeons and dragons mold um so you know i wrote for some fantasy rpgs i wrote for uh, the uh, white wolf's world of darkness like i i and that gives you a good feel for both game design and sort of narrative game design to a large extent um and alongside that i was also doing uh, short stories and other other little bits of fiction um so I, I always had in mind, you know, I, I'd like to get into to video games at some point because I, you know, I've always had that passion. Um, and when I had sort of amounted a, a critical mass of uh, traditional gaming credits, I started uh, reaching out to game companies and eventually uh, Bioware scooped me up. Um, and I learned very quickly that video games uh, are very different from uh, pen and paper games and board games and whatnot, but uh, at least some of the lessons still apply. Cool. It does seem like a lot of the franchise writers that I've spoken to come from that pen and paper community and additionally come with lots of different skills. So you might know how to write prose, you might know how to write for branching narrative, um, you might know how to factor in something like the sort of math you have to do in a pen and paper game. Um, and then it just all comes together. It's, it's a really useful, uh, 
testing ground and, and experimental ground uh, to a large extent, because one of the nice things about pen and paper games is they're not, I mean, they're not five cents to produce a book, but compared to a video game, they're very, very cheap. Um, so you can, you can try things and if they go wrong, it's not the end of the world. You know, if, if you write, you know, one monster in a monster book and it's really pretty terrible, but you, you know, you try different things and you tried experimenting, then you know what? It doesn't bring the entire monster book down the way, you know, having a really awful enemy that you're repeatedly fighting in a video game might. Um, so it, it gives uh, it gives you a chance to sort of stretch yourself and yeah, get a hand in both rules design and story design and all sorts of different aspects. Um, I think these days fewer uh, video game designers and writers are coming from the pen and paper world. And I think that's not good or bad. I I think that's largely a product of there being a lot more uh, indie homemade video game design tools available. Um, There wasn't really a lot of that back when I started. There was not you know, sit down and use Twine for half an hour and have a beautiful text adventure game. Um, so nowadays there are there are training, you know, training grounds more uh, more specifically geared towards video games. Um, but uh, but I think it's still pen and paper is still a rewarding path for people who have an interest and passion for that medium. It's not necessarily something I would say. Well, you know, that's even if you're not interested in it that's the way to go to get into video games. That's interesting though, because the way you describe that is sort of a, a community where you can try things. And if it doesn't work, it's not going to bring an entire game or an entire company down. Um, almost does remind me of the way more and more people are using the internet to put out their own projects and to start maybe not necessarily fan projects, but like twine games or something like that. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the tricky things about sort of big video games is that they need to be relatively conservative in a lot of ways in terms of innovation and, uh, you know, just trying anything that is not relatively proven because they're really expensive and it's, you know, they're very interconnected systems and it's very easy for something to go wrong. Um, so it's, it's smart design to play things relatively safe and be very careful about where you're, you're pushing limits, but that's not a great way to learn new stuff really fast. Um, so yeah, so that, that indie community I think is, is really good both for, both for, you know, bringing in uh, new, new designers with new ideas, but also sort of forcing uh, larger companies to, to look at that world and go, okay, you know what, maybe we can't uh, experiment in this vast way, but the, here's our, here are 20 examples of some really interesting game mechanic that we can then try to learn from and adapt on a, on a larger scale. So would I be correct in saying that the sort of indie community is allowed to be weirder? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think uh I think that's a good thing in a lot of in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's a reason oh. I love indie games so much is that 
you can find some really weird experimental stuff, and they still can be really good in the way that, you know, AAA games can't really, yeah, like Alex said, experiment in that way. Um, but you can kind of see sometimes that things that indie games do eventually make their ways into the bigger games because, yeah, they work, and there's that proof that they work. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I can't I can't add anything to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, good thing I have more questions, I guess. Um, so speaking of sort of fan communities, um, in the recent issue of Star Wars Insider, there was what I thought was a very good interview between two authors, between Chuck Wendig and Claudia Gray, and talking about franchise writing. And Claudia Gray described it as, quote, not a writerly experience at all. All my writer self had to do was keep up with the pure nerd fuel being created. And obviously, she is a novelist. She put craft into it. That's not to say that it was not a an art. Um, but would you agree that franchise writing is primarily a, a fan activity? Or do you come at it purely as this is my professional work or a little bit in between? That's that's a fascinating quote. Um, yeah, and for for me, it is it is the it is entirely the opposite. I I actively try to turn off my fanish self when I'm at working on a franchise uh, piece. Uh, for me, I I I don't assume that whatever I'm excited about in this. That if I if I lean into that, I don't I don't think that's going to end up with something anyone else wants to see. <laughs> now, obviously, that's that's a very personal um, situation, right? Like, clearly, it works for uh, for Claudia Gray, right? She's she's doing fantastic stuff. Um, but for me, I very much try to try to turn off that part of my brain and sort of take the, you know, quote, objective, as objective as any of this artsy stuff can be, and go, all right, so what, what does this franchise do well? Like, what are, what are the tools here? What, what is it aiming for? What is it accomplishing? What is resonating with people? What are the tools available? What are the directions that you can sort of go a little bit off from the main direction without, you know, tearing the whole thing apart? And really, you know, really dissecting the engine and going, all right, so this is, these are the parts I've got. Now I know what kind of stories I can shape. Now I can start thinking about what appeals to me. And now I can start thinking about, all right, so what, what interests me in this, this set of stuff? Um, and what interests me to build it? Which isn't necessarily the sort of thing that I'm excited about as an audience member. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm really delighted by the humor in a particular franchise, um, I'm not really good at writing funny stuff. So that's not what I'm going to try to accomplish if I'm, if I'm working on something within that, Mm. uh, within that IP. That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, still aware of what tone you can bring to it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think it's important to to be excited about what you're doing. Um, you know, once you've once you've figured out the the box that you're working within and sort of the the best things that that you can accomplish, you you do need to then sit down and go, okay, so 
I've got I've got this set of directions I can go. What am I passionate about? Um, but for me, it comes from from you. You I need to take apart the uh, the franchise before I get to that point because otherwise, I feel like I'm going to go off in in a direction that maybe t- goes away from the franchise's strengths in general, or maybe is just only appealing to me. Right. Like I, you know, me and like three other nerds who fit my particular set of tastes, which is, you know, usually not what uh, what you want to do. You, you you want to try to reach at least, you know, a sizable portion of the, the fan base, not the uh, not the hardest of the hardcore fans for you know character x or yes i would i would love to see a whole novel about the zeltrons or hologram fun world or whatever right like you (laughs) you you need to keep the broader appeal in mind that that makes sense um so you kind of have answered what my next question was going to be which was any tips for writers about switching between different franchises um even as someone that's just looking at this from the outside of not written professional fiction uh, for for this but you can see like okay halo uses a certain vocabulary star wars uses a certain vocabulary and and you talked about that about the framework um anything else you want to add about sort of differentiating between franchises yeah i think um I think when you're when you're going between franchises, you know, this sort of long established franchises in, in particular, um, you do need to have a good understanding of the audience as well. I mean, I, I touched on that a little bit. You know, people people come to different franchises for different things, and you know, of course, everyone has their own particular reasons, but. Uh, just because you can do something with the tools of a franchise doesn't mean that that's that's what the audience is is coming for. Um, you know, you can you can do all sorts of uh, ultra military or ultra mystical stuff with Star Wars. Most people are really interested in more of the the character oriented stuff for uh for star wars the you know the relationships not necessarily between the canon characters but those sorts of themes and feelings um whereas i'm guessing i i don't have a a super strong sense of say the halo franchise but i i think they're probably you you could do that sort of story, but there's there's probably a desire for a little more sort of science fictional exploration themes, um, a little little harder on on the military stuff, right? Like figuring out what what the appeal is is really important. Yeah, and I think I mean even your book Twilight Company is sort of proof that you can go with a certain genre, it's very much a military star Wars novel, but I think it also has those themes of like hope and friendship to, to use the broadest possible terms that are sort of embedded in that franchise. Sure. And to, to use, uh, to use twilight company as an, as an example, um, for me, that's, that's probably about as far as I could push star Wars in kind of a, a military direction without it, stopping feeling like star wars um and that was intentional right because the you know battlefront is it's a military game right it's it's about 
armies of of people clashing and you know go leaning into that feeling as much as i could while still being star wars was was the goal um but i wouldn't want to push farther than that that's interesting was there any circumstance you can think of that it was particularly difficult to capture the tone of a particular universe? Oh, um, I mean, any any time you're you're going off the the central point. I mean, well, that going going back to the the question about jumping between universes. Um, any time I switch from one to another, it can take a little sort of gearing up time where it's like okay no no this this is not this is not a star wars story anymore or you know this is not you know this is not a horror story this is this is whatever um because even if you're not using those those specific elements um the the approach at least for me sticks in my head and i need to remind myself all right no don't don't default to what you've just been doing the last four weeks or 10 months or, or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. It kind of gets inside your head because that's what it has to do in order for you to write it <sighs> in the way it needs to be written. Right. I, ideally. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. If it, if it's going well, it, it does get inside your head and it means that, you know, when you're, when you're home eating dinner, those, those wheels are still turning in the back of your head and you need to very deliberately start turning those off when you, uh, when you move to a different project. Huh. Um, all right. So one of the things that I've, I've liked about your work is that you do tend to have very diverse characters. Um, in our interview in insider, you said that you aimed specifically for gender parity in twilight company. And, um, while writing diverse characters with complexity is important, I think it's also a pretty low bar that not a lot of <laughs> authors handle. And like, so I guess my question is, it, how do you do you keep that in mind all the time? And is there any particular challenge in it? Um, I mean, I, I try to keep it in mind all the time. Um, it often sort of floats down as more immediate concerns come up um you know when i'm when i'm hammering at a plot and just trying to make parts fit together at all it's hard to to keep you know issues of diversity and social responsibility in the foreground so you know you sort of go back and look at, at everything with those eyes on a on a regular basis um or at least that's that's how i try to do it knowing that it's not actually going to be in my head uh head constantly um and i i think the other uh the other element i was thinking about this earlier a lot of writing is again for for me is looking at your default choices for everything and deciding what is worth your time to re-examine and change and what just to leave. Um, so as an example, if you're describing, you know, a room, you're describing a prison. Um, there are all sorts of assumptions that everyone, including the writer is going to bring to what does a prison look like? 
And if I'm writing a prison scene and my focus is on, all right, so how are the characters reacting? What's the tension here? My biggest concern is not like, well, you know, should the wallpaper really be peeling? Like that's, that's the easy way to do it, right? Like prisons are, are dank and, you know, poorly maintained. Sure. We'll, we'll just throw that in because I want to put some description in there, but that's, that's not really what I'm thinking about. And knowing, okay, either, either stopping myself immediately and going, hey, is, is that the right decision? Or more likely going back and going, all right, you know what? I threw in something by default so I could focus on what was important in that scene. Are those defaults the right choice? Um, that sort of thing also applies to things like gender and all sorts of diversity issues, right? Like you, you throw in a character and because you're worried about that character's uh, role in the story and whether or not they're going to fulfill this particular particular need, thematic or character or plot or whatever, um, you know, you're you're not thinking about all right. Well, you know, what what race should this person be? What gender should this person be? What you know, whatever. Um, and then you know, learning okay that in addition to you know, physical description or whatever, that's something that's one of those assumptions that you need to remember to re-examine uh, is important to to hitting that real world level of diversity. Yeah. And I think that keeping that real world level of diversity in mind is, is sort of a good way to do it. And I realized my question came out a bit more a bit more aggressive than I intended it to. So I sort of apologize for that because I don't, I mean, as a writer, you're juggling a lot of things, you know, it's, it's one thing in there, but I think it's a very important thing as well. No, I, I agree. And it's, and I think, you know, it's, it's difficult because there are all these other aspects of, you know, does, does this function on a basic level, but that doesn't mean that, these other aspects aren't equally important to the the finished work. Um, it's just that you know when when you're staring and you're like, well, this this is never going to be a finished work. You need to remind yourself, well, there there are other things that are going to matter later on. Maybe you should be thinking about those now. Mm, that's interesting. And there, I feel like there's such sort of small things, like even you know describing a character like brand or describing women with scars very rarely happens and just putting a little more detail in the description is something that doesn't always happen but goes so far toward adding that realism and that that is i mean getting getting that realism even if even if you don't believe that diversity is a virtue for its own sake which i do um you know yeah you you are you are moving towards something with with greater verisimilitude at that point, right? Like mm-hmm. giving something a more more sense of yeah, this is this is kind of what the real world is like. That adds texture to everything else in the work, right? Every every element is supporting every other element, and even when we don't notice, well, that that was you know that's a stereotype or that you know it seems weird that everyone in this is a white male even if you're not actively noticing that i do believe that those things 
bring down the the level of realism of the rest of the work and give it less emotional impact. Hmm. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to hand the last questions over to Saf because they're more game writing questions. So if you want to go ahead with that. All right. All right. Um, so you've done a lot of narrative design, written a lot about it, um, but I was wondering when it comes to narrative design and especially branching narratives because you do that kind of stuff, is there any kind of process in particular that works better for you? Um, I mean, every, everyone has their own process. Um, with branching narrative, um, even the people who really like to sort of build stuff on the fly, I think eventually figure out, all right, you know what, there, there is some pre-planning required here um, because so much of it uh, is about keeping your story from spiraling out of control. Um, I'm not a I'm not a flow charter. I don't make uh, detailed diagrams of where everything can go. I generally prefer not to branch to the point where I can't keep it in my head. Um, you know, I'll, I'll write this stuff down, but if something becomes so complicated that I need to reference charts to figure it out, then I'm probably not going to be having all of these possibilities in my head when I'm actually writing, which I think is is really useful when you're doing branching. Um, at sort of a, a super high level, designing a branching story for me is really about figuring out the in in a non-branching story, you're typically building things towards strong character-based decision moments of one sort or another. The same is true of branching, only you don't actually know what those decisions are. You just know what the decision points are and the multiple uh, multiple paths that can come out of that. Um, and I find it useful to always always rem- remind myself of that and remind myself, okay, you know, what are what are the big emotional decision points and how are we properly building up in multiple ways to multiple possible um, actual decisions at those points? Right, yeah. I, I don't know if that you, answered the question. <laughs> um, I remember you saying in an article you wrote a while back that if you want a player, I think it was you who wrote it, um, if you want a player to remember something, you give them a choice related to that um, thing. And I was wondering, what would you, was that you that said that? Um, that that sounds like me. That yeah. sounds very plausible. It's something <laughs> that would come from me. Yeah. Um, when it comes to games that don't necessarily have branching choices or anything, how would you go about something like that? Um, yeah. So when you're when you're dealing with trying to get stuff to stick into the player's mind uh, when they're not interacting in a super direct form with the narrative, um, there was. Uh, there was a panel on cutscenes at uh, Comic Palooza Houston a couple weeks back, where uh, it was me, uh, one of the writers uh, or the writer over at uh, Stoic, the Banner Saga folks, and uh, Carrie Patel, one of the uh, writers over at uh, Obsidian. And one of the things that we sort of kept returning to was the notion that a cutscene should be rewarding or at least uh, playing off things that you have actually been doing in gameplay or 
in some way establishing things that are going to be important to game plan. And I think that also applies broadly to all sorts of narrative information. Um, and that doesn't need to be so direct as, well, we can't actually do character relationships because that's not about the things that I'm going to be shooting. Um, you know, it, it can be a lot more nuanced than that, but it can be, all right, if you want me to care about the growing relationship between the player character and an NPC, um, you know, build up that relationship through, you know, having that NPC as a sidekick character during gameplay and give, you know, lots of fun uh, banter that is reactive to, you know, me blowing up barrels or whatever the, the actual gameplay of it is, and then pay that off later or, you know, the reverse, build that up at some point and then pay it off through, uh, through the gameplay because, it's it's ultimately the the player's story and the player's primary focus has to be on the gameplay just from a a sheer ability to concentrate and play the game uh, point of view no matter how interested the player may be in the story there's always that all right well i i still need to know how to play the game so making sure that everything connects in some way to that uh, will make people We'll, we'll make stuff stick in their heads. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's more of a, it's it's more of playing, not telling, if, is that the right phrase? I'm reading that somewhere. So, like, it's it's a lot of the narratives through gameplay rather than just cutscenes. Uh, well, I think you can, you can even, you can even tell so long as you are at least telling about playing. <laughs> um, yeah. If, if that makes sense, right? Like, it, you can't just have a separate narrative track and the, the more closely you can relate uh, narrative material to stuff that I'm doing. If you can integrate it entirely, fantastic. If you're at a layer of remove where it's like, all right, we're setting stuff up, we're paying it off. That's fine. But the, the farther out you get, um, you know, the, the more that my game is uh, the more I'm playing Pac-Man and then getting cutscenes of my dinner with Andre, like the less I start actually paying attention to the uh, to the cutscenes. Yeah, are there any games in particular you can think of that do that particularly well? Ooh, uh, <laughs> sorry, good question. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd have to have to muse over that one. Um, yeah, my my go to sort of. Uh, linear narrative really well done game for the last year or two has been uh saints row four um which is really excellent at just maintaining consistent tone and consistent through lines i would need to sit down and sort of examine on a cutscene by cutscene basis all right you know how how well is this connecting although i think one of the things it does do well is you know, it's it's a comedy game to a large extent, and you can get away with this in comedy games in ways that you can't with more dramatic games, but it works as an example even so, is that a lot of the plot doesn't actually matter that much. It's much more about what your excitement level or sort of engagement level with the, the characters who are bantering along with you is. Um, so if it gives you something complicated about the plot and 
it doesn't really stick in the player's mind, it's okay because the narrative is not leaning on that for its strength. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So speaking of types of games, um, you've done work with MMOs like The Old Republic. Um, when you've got such a large world to explore and there's a lot of you know, in-game distractions as well as real-world distractions to take you away from the game, how do you craft a compelling and immersive story in an MMO? Yeah, the, the MMO narrative problem is one that uh, I'm, not, I'm not convinced has ever been entirely cracked. <laughs> you, can, you can even look at something like the Old Republic and the, the approach to narrative in there has, has changed over the years. Um, you know, it's, it's one where we started out um, sort of very much signposting, all right, so this is this is your core story and you're, you, you know, when you're in those core story moments, it lets you get into that particular headspace. You can focus on that. It's not necessarily at its, you know, multiplayer height during those moments. Um, but you know that going into, right. It's like, all right, pure, pure single player story in these, these funneled moments and the, more sort of social it becomes and the more uh sort of well you know i just want to i just want to kill a few things on my lunch hour and the more you get into that sort of content the lighter the story gets um and that's that's an approach that i think worked reasonably well um so much of game writing and mmo writing ends up being figuring out how much attention you've actually got from your audience and knowing how to work that. Uh, so the, the notion that, all right, well, how much, how much is your uh, player being distracted by multiplayer chatter and how much do we want to accommodate that um, versus, you know, how much is this, if you've got a ton of super complicated mechanics in a raid, that is not your moment to be delivering really important story moments over, uh, over uh, voiceover um, and figuring out, all right, where, where is the player's attention at any given point in this game and making sure that you're offering the appropriate amount of story to that moment, as well as guiding players as to how much attention they should be giving the story uh, is is a a constant challenge. I don't know if that uh, actually addresses the MMO question all that much, but that that's my my ramble. <laughs> that topic of sort of balancing multiplayer activities or just activities that take a lot of player energy with story brings uh, brings me in mind of Destiny, which I play a lot. That's the MMO that I'm most familiar with, and. Um, because I think in some cases it does that really well. It, um, you always have a reason for where you are. Maybe that MMO, that, um, PVP area is set up. One of them is in honor of fallen warriors, something like that. There's always a little bit of, of flavor sort of speckled in there, which I, I is not unusual for games. You can see that they sort of reverse engineered it. They went, okay, we, we have this game type we need a little bit of story for it and there's um when you mentioned the raid uh, a lot of the raid lore is in the grimoire cards for destiny which are 
wonderfully done, but are a completely separate box. You have to go to a browser to see them. Um, and you and can I think even that's, see those on your on your cell phone, can't you? Yes. Isn't there yeah. An app for those? Okay. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, you could pull them up during the game if you wanted to, and that's not how I've typically done it in my experience, but they certainly could. Um, and I think that that's, that's not a bad way to do it because then you can find things if you want to and they're not distracting, but I know that's been criticized as well. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really hard balance because you also don't want to, you don't want to make the, the narrative aspects totally optional if that's mm. going to be yeah. an element of importance. Um, and you can, you can offload some of that. Um, but it can also be, it can also be a crutch, right? Um, you know, one, one example that I, I like to use for that, uh, sort of thing is, um, in a game like, uh, Mass Effect or any, any sort of branching dialogue game, that has big optional lists of questions that you can ask. Um, a lot of the time, the actual narrative kind of assumes that you've asked at least some of those questions. Maybe not that the narrative doesn't make any sense if you haven't asked those questions, but it doesn't really have the same strength. And the way I look at it is, okay, if, if a question falls into that category or a codex entry or a grimoire card or whatever, if you're, if you're actively really kind of weakening your core story by making that entirely optional, then maybe either that shouldn't be optional or you should be adjusting your core story. Um, and that, that depends on your, your audience as well, right? If you're, if you're, assuming that, you know what, we're, we're not really selling this as a story game. We're not really too worried about people getting a suboptimal story experience. Sure, fine. You can offload a lot of that, uh, that material. But that's, that's all stuff that you need to adjust for and keep in mind. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and would you say that comes from... Um, sorry, I lost the train of thought there Comes from implementing like narrative design, thinking about it from the get-go in the game? Like, from early on rather than bring it in later on oh absolutely yeah i mean you you need to know what your what your narrative goals are um from the very start because otherwise if, if you try to bring narrative into a game late in the process then your your narrative has already been defined you just don't know how it's been defined um and you know you you build a narrative to fit the box that you've already built or um you build a narrative that doesn't fit the box that already built and either way that's not great if the box that you built doesn't end up being perfect for the sort of narrative that you want to do um so yeah at least having some sort of narrative vision uh from the start i think is is enormously important yeah and narrative itself involves a lot of uh cooperation is not the word I wanted um, collaboration between the different game developers right because you've got to implement it through not just cutscenes and stuff but also gameplay as well um, have you had any particular challenges with that kind of collaboration in game development studios um, 
every, every game has its own uh, its own set of of challenges when it when it comes to that sort of thing. I mean, even when when everyone is ideally on the same page, um, which is relatively rare. I mean, even even when everyone's like, okay, you know, we want this level of story in a game. Um, in practice, every department kinds of kind of ends up going in a slightly different direction than intended as design and art and so forth are iterated on, right? Because the the starting vision never ends up working out perfectly. Um, and when you're dealing with something that is kind of uh, it's it's very squishy. You you can't you can't always put a finger on like the narrative feel of something. Um, making sure that as you know, as the art style becomes you know more or less cartoony, or the gameplay becomes you know more or less frenetic, um, that that information is going to your your writers, and that that is still being adjusted for um and that you know if necessary you know there's there's some hand raising and going hey actually if you if you keep going that direction that uh that actually starts killing the uh the fact that you know your your super uh streamlined character designs actually are not going to work for most of the writing that we've done because we were assuming we were going to have like a super detailed facial expression system. So all of our lines are like really sort of light there. There's tons of subtext to them all because we were basically expecting, you know, actors to be showing the stuff on their faces. So the, the more you move away from that, the, the more rewrites we have to do all of, all of that sort of thing ends up being, uh, being in the mix even with the best of intentions and of course on on other projects people are just on entirely different pages from the start and you can you can imagine how that goes yeah definitely i can imagine that can cause a bit of tension and things um megan did you have any more questions no i i think that was it um alex is there anything else you want to add or that you feel that we sort of skipped over that you would be interested in no, no, I, I think we we covered quite a lot of ground here. <laughs> I'm I'm hoping that my uh, my rambling uh, craft driven answers are uh, are of some interest. But uh, but otherwise, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely of interest. Again, thank you so much for coming on. We try to have sort of a variety. So getting out of um, Basically, what I'm saying is that the broad answers are fine because that's what we were looking for. So, <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for having me. Sorry, yeah, thanks for coming on so much. <laughs> that, thank you so much for for having me. It is it has been great fun. Yeah, and so I guess this has been our episode. It's been a pretty cool episode. Um, we'll be back in two weeks again. Theoretically, we won't have another break like we did last time, and. So, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at my website at alexanderfried.com. And I'm also on Twitter uh, at, at Alexander M. Freed. Cool. Megan, where can we find you? You can find me at, at blog full of words on Twitter. Or um, I write for Den of Geek. I write for 
um, StarWars.com, for DelrayStarWars.tumblr.com, and for things here and there. But if you follow blog full of words on Twitter, it will all, you can find it all there. Awesome. And I myself am on Twitter at Wanderlustin, and I also have my blog, Not Staff Work. I also write for a bunch of places, but you can just find that on my Twitter as well. And awesome. Thanks again, Alex, for coming on. And this is our episode for today. Don't forget to check the Western Reaches. Mm-hmm.